Good afternoon. <laughs> so funny. I wanted to start off asking, if someone were to ask you what is the story of your life, how do you situate yourself in the context of where you've been and where you're going? Do you feel like you have a story to tell? Do you? Do you think that you can put that into a somewhat coherent story? One of the more significant uh, books of philosophy in the last 30 years or so, Alistair McIntyre's After Virtue, starts off by claiming that one of our problems is that we've lost any ability to tell our, our own story. We have become so disjointed, we have no roots, we have no real rootedness where we are, where we have been, that we're just scattered, picking up different pieces from different stories, and we don't know where we've been, where our family's been, or where we're going. Would you say that that, that is your case or not? I mean, it's very, it's very hip, especially in, in postmodern circles, we're, to say we're done with the meta-narrative. We, have, we are, those things are old-fashioned, and we don't need those things anymore. But, what we're going to look at today is this incredible story that God wants us to be put in. He wants to put us in, and, and it's really a story of our champion, Christ Jesus. But he tells a grand story in these verses uh, in the book of Hebrews. And so I hope that you are open to seeing this meta narrative. What is the story of your life? Where have you been, and where are you going? This will be true of all of you, at least to some extent. So let's, let's pray and ask God to speak to us today. Father, we do praise you. We praise you for this day that we have been able to come and worship you. And we ask now that you would simply speak, that we would encounter the living Christ by the power of the Holy Spirit. Father, we thank you for your love. And we ask that you would meet us through this wonderful passage of uh, grace and mercy and comfort, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, this, this uh, passage in Hebrews starts off, and it's pretty clear that the, the prologue to your story, and this is the prologue to everyone's story here, really comes up in his quote of Psalm 8. And he quotes Psalm 8, part of it where it talks about how can God, uh, what is man that you are mindful of him, what is the son of man that you care for him? He starts off in that psalm saying, uh, uh, oh, Lord, how majestic is your name? So he gets this huge sense of God, but then he's asking that question of how can you even care for humanity? And not only do you care for him, but you give us a, a kingly role. And so the prologue to our story is that we are created with incredible glory. We are created, every single one of us has this glorious destiny to act as sort of vice-regents, which is one word that, that theologians like to use, or sub-kings, or people who are meant to just take care on behalf of God, the world. And he's thinking all the way back into Genesis, that we were placed here with a purpose, a purpose to be dependent on God and to live in light of us being the image of someone else. But that is a really glorious that is the prologue to your story. That is the introduction to who you are as a human. You may not realize that. You may not believe it. But that is who you are. 
You were made for that. We have an incredible purpose. We have incredible dignity. And that's maybe something that um, we lose a lot or we forget about it in Christian circles or something that uh, I want to remind us of, this incredible dignity of every human. This is true. This is your job on earth, to be uh, uh, underlords, to be under shepherds of God's creation. And so it's pretty clear that he's uh, referencing Genesis through Psalm 8 here, talking about uh, all things even have been subjected to humanity. When he says him in the Psalms, he's talking about Adam and standing in for all of humanity. That's, that's our job. That's who you are. Um, but then this glorious purpose has an incredibly tragic uh, turn of events. And so part two in every one of our stories it's described in very important ways in our passage. It's described that those who were meant to be kings are now subjected to the fear of death. We are now subjected to lifelong slavery under the power of the devil. Later on in the passage, it's where he, he brings this, but he, he uses that same word subjected that he uses several that it's used in the psalm and then he uses right after in, in verse eight and nine, when he says, we have been subjected to the fear of death, to the one who has the power of death, even the devil, under lifelong slavery. So not only is he pointing to that tragedy, that the ones who were meant for kings, you had this glorious creation and purpose, you have been subjected, you have been enslaved. And so stop there. Is that your life? Do you live as if you are pretty much enslaved to your own desires? Do you live as if you're just stuck in this step two and there's no hope, there's nowhere to go, and you're just sort of lost in despair of that? That is true of everyone that we go through step two, but please know that that is not where you have to remain. If that's you today, know that there is, there is a cure. This is not the end of the story. This is true of everyone, but it doesn't have to be the end of it. It doesn't have to be the, the, the ultimate purpose. We were not meant even for death. We were meant for eternal presence with God. That's what we are created for. That is what it means to be human. And other than that, nothing is going to satisfy. Nothing else is going to feel right. And that's why. So your, your story's part two has this tragic aspect of it. The other tragic aspect of it that um, is hinted at towards the end of the passage when he uses that word propitiation, he talks about that there is a wrath against our sins that requires God's propitiation in the form of Jesus Christ. And so not only are we subjected, though we were meant to be kings, no, not only are we subjected to lifelong slavery, but we have uh, an inner sinful desire that separates us from God, that requires justice. Propitiation, you may know, you may not know, is, is one of those big theological terms that has to deal with um, taking care of God's wrath against sin. It's a personal 
term having to do with God. And we're going to come back to that uh, as far as why it's so important that Jesus dealt with our relationship to God, not just our relationship to ourselves or one another for our sins. Uh, if you're curious about that word, you can look at Romans 3.25, and it shows up in 1 John a couple times as well, um, for what Jesus did for us. And so whether or not you believe in this glorious destiny, I think you can agree with part two of your story, at least in the cosmic sense, that there is something deeply wrong in the world. There is something deeply tragic. No philosophy, no religion doesn't have a definition of sin, even if they call it something different or put it in different terms. This is very universally obvious that there's something deeply wrong. And this is everyone's story. But I want to take a little bit of a hiatus in telling this story. This is So far, this is true of everyone's story. You have a glorious destiny, and it is in the middle of a tragedy. But if you are reading this passage, and I'd encourage you to look at it in your Bible or, or in the, the bulletin, if you're looking at this passage from verse 9 and on, you should wonder, is he ta- when he says him over and over, who is he talking about? And I will confess, I wondered that over and over in different verses in this passage because it is not very clear. In Hebrews, I finally came to appreciate the, the sort of what, what people talk about as the rhetorical beauty of, of Hebrews and the, the poetry of it because I had to grapple with that this, uh, this week. We don't know who wrote Hebrews, but all scholars from all sorts of backgrounds talk about um, this is amazing prose, amazing rhetorical skill. And honestly, that's probably why the, the citation up there had Hebrews 2, 5 to 9 originally. That's what I had planned to do. I was going to focus on Jesus' uh, solidarity through Psalm 8, and I was going to focus on just that, and then I was going to do the next half uh, afterwards. But as I was looking at that and trying to figure out, is he talking about humanity here and then Jesus? Is he talking about Jesus the whole time? What's going on with this passage? I want to try to explain the clarity that I think came out through um, some study of what is really going on and what happens in our story. And so the book of Hebrews so far, it's very clear he's talking about the Son of God. It starts off from the very beginning, this humongous climax that all of the Old Testament finds its fulfillment in Christ, that he is greater than the angels that he is the enthroned, exalted, ascended king of kings and lord of lords. It's talking about the son. And then chapter 2 gives us this warning, don't neglect this incredible salvation. It didn't come just through angels. It came through the son himself. The exact imprint of God's nature, the radiance of God's glory. It's talking very clearly about the son. But what came to be the key verse to understand our passage today is verse 10 and 11. Let me read this, and we're going to break this down. For it was fitting that he, whom I later discovered is God the Father, so for it was fitting that he, God the Father, for whom and by whom all things exist, to make sure you know this is a big deal, this is God uh, who exists, everything exists for him, in bringing many sons to glory should make the founder who is Jesus, founder of their salvation, perfect 
through suffering. For he who sanctifies, Jesus, and those who are sanctified, the believers, all have one source, God the Father. That is why he is not ashamed to call them brothers. In that case, it's siblings, but it's brothers and sisters. Now, what is going on in that, those two verses that I found so enlightening? One is, just, just to note, that word founder, it's kind of a, it's a, it's a decent translation. Um, I'm pretty convinced that it could be the word champion. And maybe the biblical translators just thought that was too, too, you know, too sporty of a word to use or something. But it's not just founder, like he founded some organization, some 501c3. Some, like it, he's the champion. He's the hero because it seems to be he's, he's referencing Hercules in the sense of the Greek uh, uh, history that the writer would have been writing into. Hercules, the one who has fought death, this great warrior champion. That's who this one is supposed to be. That's the one that they're talking about. So Jesus is this champion hero, but why then is it fitting that he do these things? Well, what exactly is he doing? So again, looking at verse 10, what is it fitting for him to do? He's bringing many sons to glory. Okay? The Son of God is bringing many sons to glory. These sons are his brothers. He's not ashamed to call them brothers, as we read in his quotation of Psalm 22. The brother's life, these sons that he's bringing up to glory, who he's not ashamed to call brothers, what is their life like? Their life is one that is enslaved under suffering, under death. They live a life of pain and fear. And so it was fitting, if you're going to make their champion, if their champion is going to bring those types of people like us who are enslaved, that he's going to bring us to glory? If if he's going to be our perfect champion, he's going to do that through suffering, through the suffering of death. How fitting, I mean, how incredible that is. How amazing that is. That that is why Jesus became human. Cur Deus homo, this famous question in the history of the church. Why would God become man? Well, this is one of the best passages to answer that question. He became man to bring many sons to glory, using probably the word sons to glory there to cue us into it's the son bringing those who are risen to glory. A similar point is made in verse 17. He had to be, again talking about the son, he had to be made like his brothers in every respect so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. And we're going to spend a lot of time when we look at later passages in Hebrews talking about priest and mediator, the, the fact that he serves that role. But just notice the length that Hebrews goes to over and over to talk about Jesus became exactly like us in every respect. 
He partook of flesh and blood. That's how deep his solidarity was. That's how deep the champion hero who fought death on our behalf, that's how deep his solidarity is for you and me. Do you realize that? Do you realize that in your suffering that you have this Herculean champion who was made just like you? Made to taste death on our behalf. Did you catch that phrase? So that by, I think that was verse 9, by the grace of God he might taste death for everyone. This is your Savior. He is not ashamed to call us brothers. It is quite amazing. I hope that this is a sense of your faith, that you get not only a sense of truth, but also a sense of comfort from God. This solidarity should bring incredible comfort. 2 Corinthians 1 is what I was reminded of thinking about comfort. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and God of all comfort, who comforts us in all our afflictions so that we may be able to comfort those who are in any affliction with the comfort with which we ourselves are comforted by God. Is that an aspect of Christianity that you experience? Comfort? For as we share abundantly in Christ's suffering, so through Christ we share abundantly in comfort too. So notice that as he's holding together both the person and the work of Christ, which are two main categories that often get emphasized one or the other, but, but here you have both, meaning the person, who Jesus is, fully divine and fully human, relates to the work. Why? Why did he become human? So that he could accomplish his work so that he could be in true solidarity with you. He didn't just come and be human and then live a decent life and hang out, be a carpenter, make some nice chairs. He took on this fight of suffering and death. That was his work and his fight. There's a great little, uh, a beautiful little Puritan book by Richard Sibbs called The Bruised Reed. Um, which, too, talks about this incredible comfort that Christ brings us. Listen to this. What should we learn from this but to come boldly to the throne of grace in all our grievances? Shall our sins discourage us when he appears there only for sinners? Isn't that amazing? Are you bruised? Be of good comfort, he calls you. Conceal not your wounds. Open all before him and take not Satan's counsel. Go to Christ, although trembling as the poor woman who said, if I may but touch his garments. Is this the Christ that you come to? Do you have this sense? We shall be healed and have a gracious answer. Go boldly to God in our flesh. He is flesh of our flesh and bone of our bone. For this reason, that we might go boldly to him. Never fear to go to God since we have such a mediator with him, who is not only our friend, but our brother and husband. That's his purpose. That's why he came, to bring us to glory. He has destroyed death. And so, in this case, if we're thinking back to what is our story, we get a glimpse of our story in Jesus. And where Jesus is now, he's at the end of our story. 
And so basically this is proclaiming the, the good news again of Christ has ascended on high. He is the one where all those verses in, in chapter 1 apply to. He is the one in charge. He's the one, as Hebrews says, crowned with glory and honor. Now, that word glory is significant, but did you notice that in the Psalms, in Psalm 8, when he says crowned with glory and honor, probably it meant the way that we are all created to be some ki- sub-kings, uh, we have this glorious destiny. For the, for the writer of Hebrews, that applies to Jesus having ascended on high and completed his work. So what's going on there? He seems to be saying that where Jesus is now, that's what we're meant to be. That's our glorious destiny too. That we are on this glory train. We are going to be there with Jesus in heaven and we are in the midst of suffering but connected to our champion forerunner banner of salvation. Isn't that amazing? That the glory, if we, if you think of the enthroned, exalted king of the universe, Hebrews says he's been crowned with the glory of honor that we were supposed to have at creation and that he's bringing us to. Because remember when it says, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool, that's a picture of Jesus. That's a picture of Jesus subduing his enemies in this time now that we live in, this time of a really amazing, amazing story. We, too, are meant for heaven. In the next chapter in Hebrews, he'll say, simply, we have come to share in Christ. That's what we get by faith. That's what we get now, having been delivered. Remember, the propitiation for our sins was in the service of God so that we can come to God, so that we can be in God's presence. That's what we should ultimately want. But I want to ask you, so we're talking about this story. This story maybe the third part may be your story, may not be. The first two are all of your stories. But then you have this champion ending. So what makes this story so hard to believe? What makes this champion good, good ending, best ending of all sort of story, what makes it so hard for you to believe? Think about that. We don't like, maybe you do, but... I think a lot of us don't like those sort of cheesy, happy ending sort of movies, the sort of stories. (laughs) Unless we're honest, maybe we really do love them. But we give this facade of being sophisticated and, and hip, and it's not cool these days to like happy endings. They feel kitschy. They feel fake. Why is that? Why is it that it seems so fake? So embarrassing? Ask yourself that. And and believe me, I'm talking to myself as well. Maybe it seems unrelatable, but I often seem to start liking movies that don't have that or or shows that don't have that. Don't have that. I like shows, you probably already know this, but I'm a huge fan of Breaking Bad. I think it's an amazing beautiful picture of sin, I guess it should be beautiful, but profound, <laughs> profound picture of sin, but I, I, I'm, 
I'm coming off the gas pedal a little bit with my enthusiasm for that. Because what I need in my heart is not to make sin more believable. I don't need, I mean, it's important to understand the depths of sin. It fights our self-righteousness, and it sees how deep uh, Christ had to go to save us from this sort of sin. But what I need, really, and I think what most of us need, is to make victory more believable to be able to actually relate to the victory of Christ, the champion, the goodness of Christ. Why is that? We take solace, I know I do, we take solace in being the sort of cynic. Again, it's sort of hip to fall back into our cynicism. It feels more real and more relevant. I think it's easy because it doesn't challenge us. When you're cynical, you don't have to respond to something that's confronting you. You can just undercut it. Why is that? We can stay right where we are. Well, I would, I would encourage you to think of ways that you can make the champion in Jesus more real to your heart. That you would want it. That you would desire it. That you would see that this really is the story of the world. This is where the world is going. This is where all of those who are in Christ, that's what we have in store for us, this glory of Christ. And I know myself and I think a lot of us struggle because we want to be sophisticated and relevant. But he is, he is the Hercules who defeated death. And if he didn't do that, as Paul says, if he's not raised from the dead, we are of all people most to be pitied. This is all just a bunch of waste of time. If the victory isn't real, if we can't let God be God and see the heavenly king on his throne, hallelujah, then it's not clear we should be Christians at all. And so to, to, think, to think back to the, the whole story of Hebrews, it was helpful also for me to see this as he has just spent a long time talking about this son of God is the real king. He's the fulfillment of the Davidic king. He quotes things that apply to David. He's higher than the angels. But then it's as if he's addressing this problem that you may have asked. How can he be king if he was so humiliated? How can he be king if he was so filled with suffering and death? That seems to be part of why he goes to this. And... You know, that's part of, that is the point of the story. That is the point of, this is the same one who is King of Kings and Lord of Lords, who is those quotes that he says when he says, your throne, O God, is one of uprightness and justice. Your kingdom never ends. It's that king who partook of every in every aspect, partook on human nature. That's the same one. That's your story. And part of, so part of the confusion of, is he talking about Jesus or us? I don't know if this was the point of Hebrews, but I see the point being, he, that's the point. He, you're getting Jesus' story. Your story, if you don't stop at part two, you're getting Jesus' story. You literally get to walk in his footsteps. That's why he's the founder. So champion doesn't get at being the beginning. 
He's the first one who won, and we get to be on his team. Is that your champion, your, your conductor, taking you to glory that you're on that road? So think about it. I mean, if, if you're struggling, if you're suffering, what a way to read Psalm 22. Psalm 22, which was the Old Testament reading we heard, which is quoted in this passage when he says he is not, a call to call, not ashamed to call them brothers. When he calls them brothers, it's as if he's gone through this incredible suffering of the crucifixion and he leads them in praise in the congregation. This is a picture of the singing Savior, if you will, who suffered and was forsaken in our place, that he may lead us in worship. I would encourage you to read through Psalm 22 and read it in Jesus, in your champion. What are the fears that you struggle with? What are the fears? Fear of death can be a sort of symbol for all these other fears that we have. Fear of being insignificant. Fear of being irrelevant. Fear of being non-existing, literally. What are those fears that you struggle with? Because God has told us that Jesus defeated the one who wants to enslave us under those We have the courage to face, honestly, what those fears are because we know that they're not going to end up winning in Christ. We have incredible courage here to face them and to ask God to give us the faith of victory in Christ. That our faith would be made up more of victory. We see also our sins being dealt with. Our priest has been put forward himself as our atoning sacrifice, that we may come to God. In your sins, come to Christ. We have a merciful and faithful high priest in Jesus, the champion. I would encourage you to come. I would would challenge you to come in more ways than you already have. How do you need to let this champion be your story? Be the beginning and middle and end of your story. Let's pray and reflect and ask God to show us what that looks like. Title, man, that's.